Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Conversations for Life. If this is your first time listening in, welcome. We've been doing a series centering around the Bible's teaching on the relationship between men and women. And one of our primary concerns has been to address ways in which the Bible is used to justify sexism and misogyny. Yes, and there's a strong undercurrent in certain sections of American Christian culture that use the Bible to advocate for views and practices that demean women. And in case folks aren't sure what we mean, here's one example. Uh, This is a quote from someone who fancies himself a champion of what we might say is conservative Christian teaching and values. And I want you to hear how he describes marriage and what this communicates about womanhood and femininity. So here it goes. The way of a man with a woman is one of life's great mysteries. From every perspective, the process is mysterious, resembling a blindfolded saber dance on uneven ground. The young man who pursues marriage enters a foreign land where he wages war. On the hinges of that battle lie happiness or shame. But though a potential bride may be deeply loved, she's also at some level the foe. To achieve victory, the young man must not only win her, he must defeat her and her family, snatching her from the bosom Converting her to himself, breaking her natural bonds with father and mother, brother and sister, nurse and friend, dog and home. There's little that's tender about it. At funerals, we cloak harsh reality in kind words and soft colors. So, too, at weddings, soft words and vibrant colors disguise a bloody truth. The wedding ceremony is really a mini Versailles, an Appomattox in a nutshell of capitulation and triumph, the surrender of one woman to one man, the victory song of groom over both bride and family. Scripture tells us that a king should count the cost before sending his army into battle, in the same way a young man should count the cost and weigh the odds before entering the lists of romantic battle. It's not an easy course. Rewarding, pleasurable, wonderful, yes, but pitched conflict fraught with danger as well. So do you hear in this so-called pastor how he describes marriage? It is warfare. Let me be very clear. This is not us. We are quoting someone else. Uh, It is warfare. Warfare against whom? Against his bride-to-be and her family. In case you missed it, here's one of the essential lines of, of this quote. He says, though a potential bride may be deeply loved, she's also at some level the foe. Yeah, and uh, when I first heard that quote, Jonathan, you read that to me, I thought this really just sounds like a maniacal fetishist fantasy. So that's, uh, that's pretty intense. But we've been doing this series in part because although we are complementarian, There needs to be an open and honest cleansing of the house regarding unbiblical and sinful attitudes toward women and sinful beliefs regarding authority. 
And even more so, we need to present a proactive, biblical, positive understanding of the nature of men and women and how they interact in marriage and the church and the world. And that's what we're aiming for here. We don't want to just react to the bad things. We want to build something that's right. So for a number of weeks, we've been walking through scripture, examining what God has revealed to us, his people, about women and men and marriage. And we frequently hear about authority in connection with the husband and wife relationship. Now, it's true that the man does carry a certain unique authority in the marriage and home that's connected, as we said before, to the dynamics of the covenant. But there's a big problem with people who advance or advocate for sexist and misogynistic views. Their view of authority, which they claim is biblical, is much more, in my opinion, rooted in sinful and fallen dynamics of power and authority rather than a redemptive one. And so this is where we're going to go today. When we talk about authority, we are talking about power. So by looking at authority and power through the lens of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, I think we're going to see just why so much of this teaching that claims to be biblical is in fact an attempt to sanctify a sinful and corrupt view of authority and power. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at that. What is a sinful and corrupt view of authority and power, and what's a redeemed view of these things? Yeah. So to start off, uh, what's a sinful and corrupt view of authority and power? And unfortunately, it's easy to find examples of this, and I'm sure we've all experienced this kind of sin, but there's a few main principles that we can look at. So first of all, one of the main uh, key dynamics of the sinful exercise of power is that it is exercised for the benefit of the one who has it at the expense of the one who does not. So the one in power is exalted, and they justify treating those not in power as lesser than themselves. And in certain camps, this gets expressed through Bible teaching and application that amplifies the supposed goodness of the man's position and the supposed badness of the woman's position. Mm. And this is exactly what we were dealing with in Genesis 3.16. Yes, and I think, you know, we see this all the time in all kinds of of implicit and explicit ways. A teaching that constantly frames marriage as the positive exercise of authority by the man over the woman, who is negatively characterized as sinfully wanting to go against his authority. I mean, in that framework, Kathleen, there's a huge, huge category of sin, quite frankly, for women that men don't have. And And that category is just, you know, all the ways that Um, A woman might disagree with her husband or argue with him or have conflict with him or be unhappy with their Mm -hmm. husbands. All of this leads to a framework in marriage that inevitably benefits the man at the expense of the woman. Yeah, we talked about that before, about this category of sin, this other category of sin for women in, in, you know, any case that they're unhappy or disagree with their husbands. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so a second dynamic of the sinful exercise of power is that questioning or independent thought or will by those not in power is viewed as rebellion and it must be crushed. Mm. So just as power and authority are exercised to the benefit of the one in power, any potential sign that the others are unhappy with it is labeled as rebellion and those people will be reminded about who is in charge. Yeah, and um, you know we see this all the time with dictators. Of course, you know their authority and power are absolute. To question them, to want to dialogue, <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't even exist. You know, that paradigm doesn't you know dialoguing with your dictator. Uh, to disagree with them, all of these things are equated as treason. 
And so the person or persons must be crushed. And in marriage, this can come out through outright domestic abuse, Mm, where the wife is beaten physically, verbally, and emotionally for being, quote-unquote, out of line, um, according to her husband. But there can also be a much more subtle but no less destructive manifestation of this view that essentially calls women to constantly question themselves and view any negative feelings or thoughts about their husbands as sin. Yeah, and Kathleen, as we've talked before, um, some who are already kind of predisposed to being abusive hear about these views. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I can I can now layer God into my abuse and use right. God and use the Sign Bible as my yeah. <laughs> as my instrument of of you know abuse of, and of so, oppression and subjugation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, of course, we're not saying that everyone who holds certain views are going to be domestic abusers, but I am saying, and I know Kathleen agrees and others do too, that those views are like nitroglycerin uh, or TNT to an already abusive mm. predisposition. Yeah. Um, and as you say, Kathleen, you know, this is, of course, very destructive. Um, I think, especially when, as you talk about the soft ways, I mean, certainly we know too many cases of, of actual abuse, uh, verbal, physical, emotional abuse, but also there's just that, that, that soft exercise of that kind of view as you talked about, because, you know, women, I think in general, are already fairly sensitive relative to men in the way that they process relational conflict. In general, I think that women are more likely than men to internalize relational conflict and to feel very guilty and shameful and at fault if there's a conflict in their marriage. Uh, Men, I think, though, will feel uh, this to a degree, but much less so than women. And so this dynamic is very potent in marriage and is very easy for men to exploit. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And the last sinful dynamic of power and authority we can highlight in our time today is that it ultimately rests on falsehoods. Mm. God is a God of truth, and because sin is inherently anti-God, all sinful patterns and dynamics must be sustained and justified with falsehoods. So when it comes to the exercise of authority, it's no surprise that when this is done sinfully, uh, you always find deception and corruption because sinful authority relies on these to sustain itself. Yeah, and these, of course, hold tragically true just as much in you know societies and states, nation states, but also in the home. And when it, when it comes to marriage, a major way that this plays out is that men who want to exercise authority and power in sinful ways in their marriage will frequently justify it through religion, is what we just talked about. And, you know, in our discussion, we are addressing it through the lens of conservative evangelical Christianity, but around the world, one finds religion is commonly used to bolster and justify sexism and misogyny and all kinds of oppression of women, because religion is just a very powerful source for deceivers to use to justify their sinful treatment of their spouse. Yeah, and not because religion is... All bad. Of course, true religion, as uh, the Bible reveals, as Jesus Christ uh, fulfills, that is a good thing. And uh, but any good thing can be abused. And as we talked yeah. about at the beginning, you know, our being made in the image of God. Part of what's so potent about our sin is that it corrupts something that was designed to be so good. Mm. So things that are that are meant to be good but are corrupted can can be wielded for great evil. And Gosh, so, yeah. Even um, the Bible, which is absolutely mm. true and good and for our good, um, can be twisted and perverted to that end. Um, but yeah, a- another way we see this expressed is the way a husband 
uh, might manipulate his wife and his children through psychological abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. And um, this is more common than people realize, and it happens in the church much more frequently than I think people are willing to acknowledge. Yeah, that's the thing, too. You know, I mean, there's so much psychological abuse that always accompanies false, a sinful, um, you know, patterns of, of, of authority and power. And um, those can sometimes be much more long-lasting in terms of trauma in certain ways. Um, gosh, it's, it's really hard stuff. But, uh, but uh, you know, Kathleen, when it does come to the simple exercise of power, just to summarize uh, just we're not saying everything, but, but a few key characteristics are one that it's self-serving and self-promoting, and and secondly, it it views any criticism or independence as hostile, and it will seek to crush it, and then finally that um, these sinful patterns of authority and power they sustain themselves and they justify themselves through deception. Yeah, and we've and we talked about some ways that that plays out in marriage for each of those examples. Yeah. Um, But as we've talked about before on Conversations for Life, uh, authority and power are given by God and meant to be used for His glory and His purposes. So what does a redeemed dynamic of authority and power look like? Amen. Let's talk about that. Yeah, the good side. And of course, you know, the redeemed model, what we're really looking to is is Jesus Himself. He is the perfect example Mm. of what authority and power... He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and He uses it only for good. And so... Um, he is our ultimate example of that, and of course, the Holy Spirit empowers us to actually live this out. Hmm. Um, so first, in direct opposition to the sinful exercise of power, redeemed authority is self-sacrificial. The one in power, uh, metaphorically and or literally, dies so that others will live. Yes, and I personally call this the cruciform exercise of power. Because when we talk about the redeemed dynamic of power, we are talking about how Jesus models for us the true exercise of power in dying for us on the cross. So the first characteristic of this dynamic is that the one in power dies to self that others might live. And in marriage, this means the primary application of the husband's authority in marriage and family is going to be all the ways he's called to die to himself that they might live. Yeah, so just let me give one example. You know, now it, this is a, this is a, an example that any honest husband, even one who's trying to do this, knows that because of our sin, we too often fall short. But in a redeemed dynamic of power, in a, in a cruciform dynamic, a dying to self paradigm of power, whenever the husband and wife are fighting, the husband will ask himself first and foremost, "How did my sin and my pride and whatever else?" that I've done lead to this conflict and how has it hurt my wife? He's not going to care about whatever it is she has said or done or whatever. And, and you know, he's certainly not going to be, be framing the conflict as a time for him to exercise control over his wife and family. He's going to be thinking about what, what wrong he's done uh, to bring this conflict about. And then he's not going to seek to justify himself or win the argument. He's going to do what he can to reconcile with his wife in that moment. Now, this is hard. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, And none of us will ever do it remotely uh, as right as we should in this lifetime. But it doesn't change the pattern. In a redeemed dynamic of marriage, the one in authority is the one first and foremost called to die to self, that his wife and kids might experience life. 
Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And the wife is called to do this too. As a Christian, she's also called to model Christ-likeness by dying to self so that others live. Um, But what we're focusing on here is that because the husband is the one who has the authority to lead his family and represent them before God, he's the one who bears the primary and initial call always to die to self for his family. And I think what this also means is that, Kathleen, you know, dying to self and, and putting others first, the husband's greatest joy is seeing his wife flourish and his children flourish. He wants them to become more them, not less. And he wants to hear their thoughts and their ideas and their dreams. And he's enlivened by it all. Seeing them flourish and grow is his greatest delight um, as their husband and, and as the father. That's really, really beautiful. And what a powerful vision for what a husband's and father's authority looks like and what it produces both in him and his family. And if you're thinking like this, if this is the summary of your desires, you will build something really good in your family. Mm -hmm. And any wife and children will be very blessed by that kind of husband. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, So the second characteristic we can highlight is that Redeemed dynamics of power and authority are self-critical rather than other critical. Hmm. Um, When talking about sinful dynamics of power, we highlighted that whenever others question or criticize, the one in authority typically crushes those expressions of independence. But there should be an undercurrent of humility that flows through a redeemed person's heart and mind that's provoked by the ever-increasing awareness of their sinful state and their lostness before salvation, and the greatness of God's mercy and grace. And all this means that the one who has authority or power in the relationship is continually self-critical. Yeah, and in this regard, (laughs) I'm just thinking about how much I don't live up to that, but how much I do want to and how much Mm -hmm. I affirm that this is so true. Um, A husband operating out of redeemed dynamics, Kathleen, of authority and of power would readily listen to his wife. Uh, because he's aware of his own sinful tendencies and, and spiritual blindness, shortcomings, the ways he's hurt others, and you know, on and on and on and on and on. You can go on forever. And in a redeemed power dynamic, though, um, it creates in the husband's disposition a softness, a kindness towards his wife um, and others, of course, too, that, that's provoked by his own deep awareness of his sin and God's mm, grace. Yeah. And of course, that, that's, and I know you, you'll say that in a minute too, that uh, I'm sure you'll agree that for women, that's also true. But as we're talking about power and the husband and authority, like just, you know, to start from that disposition, you know, um, where so often I think one, one of the characteristics I see woefully lacking in the proponents of certain kinds of male authority in the home and marriage is that they, they almost portray themselves as like God, as they're the savior of their wife and their children. And his word is law. And, and his thoughts are highly exalted above his wife and children. And there's this attitude within this movement that I see that, to me, is alarmingly non-self-critical and highly self-serving, quite frankly. I mean, to me, it's the fulfillment of sin to advocate the idea that you are like God to the people around you. Uh, but that's kind of the, the, the sense, either implicitly or explicitly, I get from their writings and their teachings. Yeah, yeah, and as you said, it does go for the wife, too. The, the wife also has authority and power, both in the marriage relationship and in the home. Um, we're not saying that the wife has no authority or power, that, that she's a slave or her husband or her kids. Absolutely not. Um, what, what we're saying, first of all, is that men and women are made differently. They express God's character as image bearers in unique ways, 
and they carry out their tasks on earth in distinct and unique ways. Um, never does the Bible teach that women have no authority or power, or that mm. they that they should not have authority or power. There are certainly cases where women um, are stripped of of any power, but yeah. What we believe about marriage and about the marriage covenant is that when it comes to representing the family as a unit before God, the husband is the primary representative. So he's the one who carries that authority. And as we said before, Jonathan, in the Bible, authority is not primarily associated with power, but with responsibility. Yeah, and that's really, I mean, that is, if there's anything that I want people to, to get in terms of the distinction between a sinful paradigm of power and, and one in the Bible and authority is that you know, the, in, in the fallen dynamic, uh, the primary association with authority is power. You know, so my authority in whatever sphere is all about me being able to exercise as much power over others as possible. But in the redeemed dynamic of authority, the primary association um, is not with power, but responsibility. So when the Bible portrays the husband and the father as the primary spiritual and covenantal authority in the home, the association is not with power, but responsibility. Because the husband is the primary covenantal authority in the home. He has that primary responsibility for the health of his marriage, the flourishing of his wife as an image bearer of God, the discipling of their children, and all other dynamics of the home. You cannot be a spiritually healthy family if you're not including in that relational health, emotional health, physical health, uh, cognitive well-being, and all the rest. This is the husband's responsibility. Yeah, such a great and needed reminder. We must see God's word through the lens of God's ordering of the universe rather than our own sinful tendencies, which ties in perfectly to our last characteristic of redeemed dynamics of authority. Um, in contrast to the fallen dynamics, uh, which rely on falsehoods, deception, and corruption, a redeemed dynamic relies on truth. True vulnerability, sincere and open communication, mm. and honest acknowledgement of reality. What this leads to is trust, repentance, authenticity, and vulnerability within the home. And this, Kathleen, what you just said, this last characteristic is so powerful in marriage and in family. As we think about sin and, and the ways that we all struggle with sinful thoughts and feelings and words and actions, um, we know that deception is a big part of it. And we know that with deception comes fear and hurt, broken relationships, anxiety, and just, I mean, so much more. And any good counselor will, will tell us, will tell you, it will tell anyone that, that one of the foundational principles of a healthy marriage and family is low anxiety in the home. And low anxiety comes in part from the freedom within the marriage and the family relationship uh, for people to be open and honest with one another. For people to address conflict openly and to repent to God and, and to one another when a wrong has happened. For the freedom within the family to let every individual be a part of the system. But be a part of the system in, in unique ways, you know, not just crushing everyone into conformity. Let everyone be uniquely a part of the system so that they contribute to it as a unique individual. And all of this is sustained by an ecosystem of truth. Yes, that is an amazing description of what the family can be. I love that. Um, and, and there's so much more we'd love to talk about here, but our goal is that seeing this contrast between a sinful dynamic of authority and power and a redeemed expression of it helps you. We pray that it helps you be discerning and thoughtfully critical when you hear teachings supposedly from the Bible, but which have more in common with the world than with God. 
And when you read about marriage, um, it helps you think about the good and life-giving ways God designed authority and designed marriage itself, rather than believing that the fallen expressions all around us are what God wants. Um, If we know how God designed the relationships and the systems of the world, even when we see them really corrupted by sin all around us, uh, knowing that is essential to living as He wants us to live. Well, we would love to hear your comments um, or your feedback. You can reach us by email. Um, You can contact me, Jonathan, at crosslifetoday.org, or you can go online to our website, www.crosslifetoday.org, and you can fill out the contact form there. And while you're there, you can also check out our other resources and just uh, see what we're all about here at Cross Life. And uh, just a reminder, Conversations for Life is a listener-supported ministry, and you can uh, go to our website to support our work. Uh, Again, it's www.crosslifetoday.org slash give. And until next time, take care and God bless.